0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the janitors, because I recently spoke to their main, well, the vocalist, Andrew Denton, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Mostly, well, I don't know, you'll find out during the interview. But yes, the interesting world that is uh, being in a band, really, especially from the 80s and uh, life life here, there and everywhere. But anyway, look, I won't bore you with it, with any big build-up, apart from the fact that they did various John Pill sessions, Janice Long sessions, and I even saw them at the Norwich Arts Centre when they were, um, yes, uh, promoting Probably Good to Be King. But anyway, look, this is the interview, and uh, this is Andrew talk about the early formative years andrew it's over to you
1: well i mean yeah i'm I'm kind of the same era i mean i'm born in 61 so just a little bit older but um i think uh probably top of the pops wise you know i think the first single that me and my brother we used to buy stuff together because he's only a year younger than me um and the first single that we bought properly bought was um mark bolan um, I it was rider White Swan, I think, God, that's which impressive. was one of the early, early T Rex, like T Rex, here. Yeah. Um, and then from there on in, we were kind of I I, I went off into the this sort of Bowie route. No. Um, and there was a young lady down the road who who I kind of was very keen on, who who was also a big Bowie fan. So I got a, kind of. It was a sort of double-edged sword, really. I was sort of, uh, you know, but I was massively into Bowie. But uh, somewhere around 75, um, I uh, ended up in a a children's home. Um, So I was taken out of the family and put into a children's home for a couple of years. And at that point, this is really where music became massively important to me, really, because um, I just began to kind of grow into my own tastes right i think away from you know obviously being away from people and away from lots of my mates you know we we we'd kind of gone through you know before i went in there we were um you know we were all into getting into like led zeppelin and stuff like this this sort of mid 70s stuff and um and then when i went away i i, I got bowie Al, you know i would got the lad insane i would got ziggy stardust and i took those with me and and i just remember one day walking through school with with my aladdin sane album mm-hmm. with, with me or or swapped something or or lent it to somebody and then lent me back and um some lads shouting out the window wait mate come up here uh and it was that kind of thing of getting into going into the music room and uh basically they just said, Oh, what a great album, you yeah, know, put it on, let's let's listen to it. And they they literally got the run of the music room at lunch times right. and the record player. And they basically we could we could go up there at lunch times and play albums and that's where I've kind of heard Lou Reed for the first time and, you know, um, oh dear. Um, you know all these kind of all these kind of mid seventies sort of bands in this what about, Roxy? The- what about oh,
0: yeah.
1: Roxy music? Roxy Roxy music, definitely, you know that um, in fact I think the guy who I lent the uh, Aladdin Sane to, he'd lent me the, the, the first Roxy Music album right. by Reverse. And we were kind of, you know, it, it was kind of a, you know, I was getting more and more into that kind of music. And um, certainly by the time I came out of there, and it was the year I left school that I that I kind of left, um, but by then I'd sort of got more into sort of punk rock and listening yes. to punk rock. So were you, so,
0: were the formative years, were they... In the northeast, where you sort of still live. No, no,
1: I, I grew up in uh, less. Well, I grew up in Rutland, um, right? You know, in the Midlands, in the East Midlands, and um, the the home I was I was in was in Malton Mowbray. And I went to the main school in Malton Mowbray, but I was, um, but but at night so I stayed at this this sort of I don't know what it was, but uh, yeah. some kind of you know place for wayward children. Yeah. Um, and I sort of spent a couple of years there. Um, so I was. it was very much around Leicestershire and, and the East Midlands. Because yeah. it
0: was interesting, because a couple of weeks ago, there was that film on Robert Lloyd and the Nightingales, which was on telly, King Rocker. And I remember Stuart Lee sort of said mentioned being in a children's home, but I can't remember if that was in that kind of area, actually.
1: Stuart Lee, he's from Melbourne. He, I live in Worcestershire now. He's, he's from just down the road in Melbourne. So, because, um, yeah, I think his mother's still over there
0: right yeah but
1: yeah no it it, it, this was over in leicestershire
0: right so
1: yeah and it was i suppose by the time i came to you know i left school at the easter of 77 and by that time you know it was kind of with everything was moving towards punk rock but and i remember the sitting in the home when that we used to get the daily mirror every day right and, and like as our kind of paper and I remember that the, the kind of uh foul mouth yob's headline right. and I, I remember thinking oh this looks interesting you and, know and that was kind of the point which I started investigating so yes because yeah,
0: so, punk was I was just too young for punk really I was I was aware of it but I was about 10 probably so that didn't mm. that you know it was kind of the 80s so when so you left school when you were 16 did you go to college that, at that stage and no
1: uh, no I I um I i mean, part of the reason I was in the home was because I was completely off the rails, really. Right. Um, but what I did, I, you know, I was in this place, you know, when we used to lots of kind of counselling and things like this. And um, I, think, I think it was all, you know, it's a long story, but it, I think a lot of it was associated with um, going through bereavement with the, lost. I lost a couple of grandparents and I think I just kind of went off the rails. Um, mm-hmm. But then what happened after that was, you know, was that... Um, I just never really got into education at all Uh, you know i hated school couldn't wait to be there used to take a lot of time off you know without any punishment uh used to bunk off and go you know go walk about (laughs) and all sorts of stuff and get into all kinds of scrapes but um but basically i came out with no no qualifications so but i had an apprenticeship on offer you know it's a time that you know mid to late 70s when you could just walk into a job you know right Um, so know, yeah, all my mates at school—we—we we, none of us left school with no with no career prospects. You know, we have, even with no GCSEs or O levels at the as they were at the time. You know, we we, yes. we just walked walked into employment. It was a different sort of area. You know, C- and C- um, yes. so I did that for a couple of a couple of years. Sorry,
0: I said C C S C C. S- well,
1: CSE was the was the watered down G O level. Yes. So O level if you did O level you were going to go off to, you know, going to go into sixth form and do your and then head off to university and if you did CSE you were going to go and work in a factory. Um because <laughs> you I think I think a grade 1 CSE was only the equivalent of a C O level, you know. So kind of so I, I did CSE maths and I did uh, CSE art actually and the only thing I passed was CSE art. And I got a grade two, <laughs> so I came out with virtually nothing of any value. But, I think that, um, that's the
0: equivalent of a D, isn't it? In O level, actually.
1: That, that uh, yeah. So I got good. a D in art, and that was me done was, um, um, for a few years. Yeah, and I, I and, and then I just kind of, you know, I, I carried on in that vein really. Um, moved, moved back home, uh, and worked in a worked in a factory, really, for until I was eighteen. Blimey, that's pretty. Um, so I, I was doing shift work when I was eighteen. I was working day and night shifts. Uh, you know, motorbike and you know, going out and but I, but all the time I was still muddling into music. So my salary, you know, on my money that I got cash every week. You know, you paid cash. Um, I, I would go down to London. You know, uh, I lived in um, Stamford, so you could get the train from Peterborough uh, straight down to London, uh, and you could get a day return. And you could get the one minute to midnight train back on the day return. So, you know, I used to go down to see bands in London all the time. You know, right. Slaughter dogs and penetration and all these kind of late, you know, the kind of late punk bands. Yes.
0: So when did you discover uh, your voice as a, as being a singer?
1: Well, <laughs> before I was in the children's home, I was in a church choir, oh, nice. which probably explained an awful lot. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I was, you yeah, um, know... Yeah, I head <laughs> yeah, chorister at, at, <laughs> in, the, like, in the village church choir, because you used to get paid for it. So, um, you know, I, I sort of <laughs> took, I got encouraged to do it and then uh, and then I told my mum I was quitting. I said, no, I can't do this. And I became a teenager and decided what I wasn't going to be. I think I had a fight actually. I had a fight with this lad in, in just that, as I was coming out of choir practice, he he, he kind of shouted something at me, a kid from our school. And we ended up having a scrap in the graveyard. And, and I thought, well, I can't go through this for the rest of my day. So no, uh, this is- I ended up quitting, much to my mother's horror. Well, I mean, you can go and tell the vicar yourself, you know. So I did. I went, and got my bike, went down, and said, "Look, I'm not coming anymore." But, uh, <laughs> but I've, yeah, I've always enjoyed singing. Yeah,
0: uh,
1: blimey. So, so when, <laughs> so when yeah. you know, because in the sort of
0: was it yeah, '79 Thatcher gets in, and then there's a huge amount of unemployment at that stage. And I know from doing this show, a lot of bands at the, I suppose yeah, at a certain age will you know either sign on or do, doing job seekers' allowance and enterprise mm. allowance scheme and you know we'd had the Falkland crisis and then there was the minor Strike. So during that early 80s period I and mean, there was also you know that kind of punk had happened, there was a certain amount of synth, synth pop, there was also the punk, post-punk sound as well. So how were you mm. navigating the very early 80s?
1: Uh, well the, the, this is kind of where where the Jantas really came came to be really because After having worked in a factory for, well, from the age of 16 to um, about 19, I guess, um, I got to, I think it was 1980 it was, and I'd had enough, I'd kind of, you know, I'd been working since I left school, you know, and working long hours as well, and I was kind of pretty, pretty fed up and pretty like dead end sort of situation, and um, a mate of mine had just come back from a kibbutz in israel um and he said look you'd really love it you know And I, you know we, obviously you know obviously still mad into the music and still going to see bands but i just didn't feel like you know i had anything ahead of me other than another 20 30 years working on this machine in the factory you know yes um and i just needed i needed to kind of i think i'd probably just grown up as well you know and, and i just needed to do something a bit more interesting so i jacked my job in and i uh, bought a single ticket to israel and went on a kibbutz for a, uh, for a year and back, back around the middle east and down into egypt and back through greece and up through europe and i just went on a big adventure on, you know on my Todd. yeah
0: um and so which kibbutz did you Can you remember which part of israel you were in
1: yeah i was on a kibbutz called inat which is near peta um and then i was in um on a mashav in the Negev desert called uh, Sdenitsan, I think it's called. Right. Uh, and I was down in the Negev, I was down there for a while. Um, and then I lived down in Elat uh, for a few, quite a few weeks down on the Red Sea coast and lived in the lifeguard hut there for a, about a month or so. Yeah. <laughs> and just worked in the hotel, washing up, and then, you know, just lived on the beach basically for a while. And it was just what I needed. I needed to do something... And get away from everything and, yeah and, and it just worked worked for me really well and i came back um and i decided you know there and then i needed qualifications if i was going to go and do anything so i had no o levels as i said and i went back to uh, what was then the rutland sixth form college so there i was about you know the oldest kid on the block, <laughs> <laughs> new satchel and everything um and i ended up in um in the in sick form in rutland in oakham
0: nice um
1: but um and that's where where i met you know two people the, the two people who kind of then went on to kind of start starters down the road towards the janitors was so. that
0: craig and uh pete
1: no it wasn't pete 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 was pete came after actually pete came after the first single um the it was me and me and craig hoppy yeah uh, and uh, a guy called phil story pip right um i think he you know and basically we were all in you know lots of our classes together and we had a very similar taste in music i think it was a there was um, a lot of reissues of of old blues players yes So at, at that time i can't remember what the label was called but might have been something like chess records or something had reissued an awful lot of their old back catalog like johnny hooker albums had come out and things like this and we so you know we'd sort of come on to those um we we had a me and craig in particular had a a really strong love for the cramps right, uh, and also for the gun club um and they became kind of our kind of I suppose our blueprint for for what became the janitors you know so we we kind of mixed in a bit of you know i mean jeffrey pierce and the gun club obviously did a lot of work with the blues and stuff like that and old lead yeah. belly song and things like this which were fantastic but but we used to go and see them play you know down in london or or leicester cramps played leicester one of the best nights i ever had in my life i think um just out of this world great great live band yeah. Uh, and of course, that kind of intermixing between them, because um you know, Kid Congo Powers was playing for the Cramps, and he was also playing for the Gun Club. And, you know, so it was it was great. You know, it was there were some really good bands around at that time, and um, and we sort of used to go to the meet meet Pip and. Hoppy, um, we'd go to these gigs and we, we, we'd sort of get together and we'd sort of mess around and uh, and Hoppy, was, he, he was a year above me, weirdly because he's younger than me, but he was actually the year above me at sixth form. So he finished um, just as I was kind of in my, coming to the end of my first year and he went off to art college in Leicester and we used to go over to his house and stay like the weekend you know i'd go over on a friday night repair and yeah. we'd stay till monday morning or sunday night or monday morning and then head back home you know back to college or whatever um and and we just used to go out and enjoy the enjoy leicester's nightlife and you know have a good few beers go to parties and but then when we went back to poppy's house you know we'd, we'd get the guitar out and he, he had a, a Fender twin reverb amp and we'd put a mic through it and you know, we'd be there till two, three in the morning, four in the morning, you know, just messing around, doing old Everly Brothers songs and anything we wanted, you know, we could just gun club, cramps, you name it. We would just blast these songs out. And yeah. Much to the and, were you,
0: and were you quite keen on forming a band? Had, had that, was that sort of something that was <laughs> in your mind or were you thinking, well, wow, we're just doing Well, that. it wasn't
1: at that time because we, we were, you know, we were kind of drifting a bit and I, I, I we weren't. We were good mates and we stayed in touch but we weren't really going that way um craig was a good guitarist then uh pip was really clever musician you know he was he was good with electronic stuff and he he had all the he had like a little um it was a four track little four track tiac recorder like a little you know studio thing and we'd sort of record stuff and play it back and have a laugh. You know, it was just, it was just fun, really. We were just enjoying ourselves. Um, and then I moved away. I, I moved over to Cheltenham because um, I came to an end of college and I think my parents had had enough of me. And I was, it was like that kind of boomerang before boomerangs invented, you know, <laughs> and they decided that this boomerang wasn't coming back anymore. <laughs> so they, I, I moved out and uh, moved to Cheltenham to stay with a mate who I'd met in Israel um and then i moved up to newcastle to stay with some good friends up there who people who i'd known for a long time um and then while i was up there i got it, i got this letter out of the blue um, um and this letter said uh, you know it was from craig and it just said look we we we're, we're, we're going to try and get a band together and we want somebody to come around and come down and make an idiot of themselves on the microphone do you fancy it and i thought well <laughs> how can you re- resist that kind of offer blimey so so off I went back to I gave up my uh, Newcastle life and moved back to Leicester um, and me and Hoppy got a house together um, in Coma Road um, in the in the middle of Highfields. And that was it. Really, That was where we kind of started. That's where we recorded our first sort of demos and things in the bedroom there. Um, we lived. It was a horrible house. Terrible house. <laughs> nasty place in fact the one track on the album we we wrote a track called mexican kitchen which is basically just a description of the of the filth and horrors of that place you know
0: yes one of those
1: where you had to sleep in your overcoat. you know it's that cold and damp
0: yes i know what just you never took your coat off or boot you know your army boots because it was so chilly yeah i remember sort of that first winter being away in a place which i was above the kind of i suppose the passageway and the, and the, you could feel the draft coming out through the floorboard
1: and your hair was oh, it's horrible. it was uh, yeah
0: it was we happy.
1: we just couldn't get this place you you could not there was no heating whatsoever and we and the only thing the only heating was a gas fire in the front room and uh one <laughs> we got we got into um i think there was a, a wine wind at the time called thunderbird Wine. do you remember, do you remember yes. that yes the old, nasty nasty stuff rank absolutely terrible stuff and we got into uh you know a few bottles of that and we used to you know almost drink ourselves into a coma with it um and one night we woke up and uh, i think we were signing on at the time so we'd we'd had our gyros and our gyro we'd, we'd all, all our money was on the mantelpiece and we put a candle on top of the mantelpiece and it was above the gas fire and of course the mant- the gas fire had melted the candle which had gone into the thing, and me and Hoppy had both fallen asleep in this chair. We woke up to this kind of wall of fire. <laughs> We'd literally set the front room on fire by drinking Thunderbird wine, and <laughs> but uh, yeah, and we woke up and basically all of our money <laughs> was burnt to a crisp, so we had no money for two weeks. So <laughs> mm. yeah, it was terrible times, but uh, fun. You know, it was just funny. We we just and we had a good good bunch of people around there. You know, yeah, with mates that we made then. You know really stuck with us now you know mary, mary from the bikers we met then for the first time he came around because we, we we used to have a few parties at the house and they like got this you know met uh, ian from the from crazy head he came come around and the bomb party all these kind of bands from lester you know they they kind of all you know we they we, we used to see them everywhere you yeah. know, they, we didn't know them. We, we none of us knew that we were ever going to be in bands well, it no. was just just thing this thing going on you know that Lots of good bands were playing Leicester at the time and, you know, it was, it, you know, Leicester used to be on. the. I mean, it, it's weird now because I wouldn't regard Leicester as kind of being, you know, a place where things happen. Because
0: John Peel yes, used to mention the Princess Charlotte, didn't he, a lot?
1: Yeah, well, the Charlotte was, was a fab venue, but really that only became a, a, a really good venue after um after this period really i mean it, but it came into its own i mean people like us do played the charlotte you know um it was a fab little gig um yes. on, you know like so many and the polly you know i mean me and hoppy saw nick cave at the polly leicester polly uh not long after the birthday party me and hoppy were madly into the birthday party as well you know and we went to see nick cave there i saw we saw the pokes there we saw you know and the poly the poly gigs were great you know because he was at leicester poly we used to get into them all yeah uh, and it you know it was just it was a great scene. You know, there's so many really good bands around you know and such of diversity i think that's that was the main thing such a you know diverse sort of sound yes because because having
0: done this show for for quite a while now i just sort of didn't realize there were quite so many bands and um and also just the variety as well so so because i mean obviously at the time you don't look at it as a golden period you just think this is kind of what Mm. it's what is happening so um, but then I look back and you know between 83 to 87 it was kind of this phenomenal time of music and also indie pop really exploded I mean it also kind of, you know the Smiths were also between 83 to 87 but uh, you know there was this kind of I suppose there had been quite a few amazing bands in the early 80s and then things started to really develop and that's obviously where you you sort of form and uh, become the janitors. So, what was the kind of moment yeah. that that you thought, God, this is the band, and we've we've got
1: a single? <laughs> well, I'd like to say that we 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 kind of paid our dues, but we didn't pay any dues at all. We we were we were just really really lucky, I guess. And we recorded um we recorded a a kind of cassette demo, um, which ended up somehow i'm not sure what the full story is but we there was a guy called john grayland used to play in a band called yeah No. Yeah, no. oh yes and they were they were like peel favorites and they had a, they had a decent single um in the early 80s early to mid 80s and um you know we knew john we'd, we'd met him a few times as we did with so many people around leicester and somehow you know he ended up with the tape i can't remember for the life of me how he ended up with it but um it might have be even been that pip sent him it actually but but um anyway either way he passed it on to mark riley um and jim cambatter in tape and they were looking for bands to you know fill up their roster a bit yeah. uh, and we got this letter from jim Cambatter in tape and saying look you know we really like your stuff uh can you can you call us from a phone box you know these days prior, prior to mobile phone can you phone us from a phone box and i'll phone you back right and we can talk about it so we phoned him up um you know all of us crowded into this phone box you know in our long trench coats with us grabbing <laughs> you know? um and um yeah the first question he said well yeah i really like your demo how many songs have you got and we said, oh, loads, you know. And, and truth was, we only had about five, um, and we sort of winged it. And 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 uh, he said, oh, yeah, really good. Would you be interested in recording them? And we said, yeah, 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 yeah. We, could, you know, we've probably got an album's worth No, We have, we, have, we still. <laughs> uh, And really, what we did was, we just, you know, he, he said, well, look, I'll come down and meet you. Um, and he came down to Leicester and we met up with them and we had a chat and all the time we kept up this kind of pretense that we'd got this you know huge back catalog of of material that we've been working on for years Um, and uh, he said look yeah go for it let's let's record let's would you like to record a single we said bloody hell yeah yeah, definitely you know and that was it so we really were the kind of the you know, I suppose the uh, antithesis of all other bands, you know, in that we we, we just just kind of happened to land a contract or land a, a label before yes. we'd done very much legwork at no all. Live
0: no live shows at that stage?
1: Nothing. No, we never played live or anything. We've just literally got five track, five <laughs> songs that we'd written, one of which was Chicken Stew, um, and that was it. And and it was originally it was called Chicken Stooge. Because it was it was our kind of <laughs> our corruption of a of a Iggy Pop song, so we we kind of turned it into our own, and um, and then um, that was it. So we 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 went up to Manchester and recorded, um, and that really kicked it all off in big time. Because yeah. within a matter of a, a few weeks of it coming out, um, NME and and Sound had jumped on it, and we'd got single of the week in there, and we'd got you know um it was the summer of 85 i think when was when was live age was that 85
0: 85 yeah
1: yeah so we were so we were <laughs> yeah because we were in jim's flat in he he lived in a big one of these big gothic mansions in um sale in manchester and he had one partic- one big room uh mark riley and his wife had a room upstairs the drummer from the creepers was next door you know the two guitarists from the four were yeah, so this whole building was like full central, you know, right? like <laughs> and, and uh you know, Mark Riley and the creepers and all that. And we and we liked them all, you know, we liked all those bands, you know, and so we were we were there when when Live Open was on. And we and so I remember being in his flat watching it on T V as it was sort of well, as we were going backwards and forwards to the studio. So it must have been eighty five. Um and that that really was it. Then it sort of all took off from there and before we knew it we were off out, you know, rehearsing for, to go on play gigs and yes um, do but a John you... Peel session suddenly we got a phone call from Jim said look you know guys you know we've um John Peel's got a gap for you if you want to if you want to go for it he said don't take it unless you really feel like you're up for it and we said well yeah we'll go for it and we we, we literally had to write four new songs to take down to John Peel and that was the basis of Thunderhead the album Thunderhead right
0: because um, that John so... Peel session you had That was recorded, it says the 17th of July.
1: Was it, what, the following year?
0: No, it was, was, no, no. Well, it said recorded 1985, the 7th of July, 1985.
1: That'd be right, yeah. So I think the shingle came out in the May of 85, and then the July, because we were writing the tracks and this is another reason why I remember it. We were, we were, they, we were writing it in a house in Newcastle. We'd set up our PA in, in a, you know, in a semi-detached in, in in Newcastle, and we were rehearsing for it um, when Boris Becker was winning Wimbledon for the first time So Because I was, I was watching Wimbledon while the boys, while they were working on some tunes, <laughs> and we had, we had a drum machine then. We didn't use a drummer. We hadn't got a drummer. We hadn't got, we'd only just got a bassist. Um, and and so yeah, it was a sort of steady learning curve. We you know, we we, we gradually evolved from two guys because when we recorded the first single, uh Pip decided he didn't want to be in a band or, you know, he said, Look, you know, it was great fun, I love doing it, but I don't think we're ready by any stretch of the imagination to sign a to release a record. And me and our people were like, Well, it may never come round again. You know, we, we we should take this chance. And he said, Well, look, I don't want to do it. And he, you know, and he he went off and did his own thing for a few years, and we did this. Uh, so when we went to Manchester. We had another guy called Simon Warnes, uh, right. who was supposed to come and play bass for us. Who was the, a mate of mine. Um, and when we got there, he, he he just couldn't do it. He just didn't feel like he could do it. And uh, so the actual on the actual recording of Chicken Stew is just Craig playing all the instruments, and me doing the, the vocals, and that was it. That, so it was just the two of us. Blimey, so we it, it we were a duo at that point with the drum machine. Um and the drum machine kept going out of time and oh it's horrendous. But uh but it was all great. Mark Mark did the production, Mark Riley did the production on it. And um and then we and then after that we we got Pete in on bass and then we got obviously we couldn't do any live shows without without a bass player and we, we thought for a while about using a drum machine, but it was problematic, and then somebody said, Well, Tim. You know, Tim Serlin is a decent drummer and he lived in Sunderland. They were all at art college together, Tim and Tim and Pete and some other friends that we knew. And uh, that was that. And that became the first kind of the first proper incarnation of the janitors the as a kind of live outfit. Yes,
0: blimey. That's um, that is that is a very rapid sort of because you did sort of, I think, five sessions for John Peel, didn't you? And uh, not five sessions, five tracks. Nowhere, Mexican Kitchen, Good to Be King, and Thunderhead Johnny. Yeah, four tracks. Four tracks, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'll learn to count. Yes, four tracks, which was kind of, yeah, you you're, you're sort of haven't even played Norwich Art Centre or any place, and you've already on the we're, John Peel show.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'd only played one gig. And I'm not even sure that we played that gig before or after John Peel, but we played at the Riverside where we were, me and Hobby used to DJ. Right. On it. We were Like um, <laughs> the worst DJs they ever had. But they got they sacked us eventually, but um, we um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So we, yeah, it was a it was incredible. You know, it was like I mean, Meteoric and and kind of you know, it was a it was a lot to take in. It was a, a weird time. Yeah. yeah. I think we. Yeah, you know, and then obviously, then we did a second session. Peel, Peel played that session. You know, two or three times. Um, and we did a follow up. I'm sure we did. One, we did a follow up for him, and then a Janice Long section, and then we finished off with another John Peel session. So yes, yeah,
0: I can see so it was
1: all. It was all very kind of you know, very exciting, Really, you know, given that you know both of us had me and Hoppy had both grown up as kind of avid John Peel listeners, you know, and Pip as well. You know, the thing that we all had in common was that you know between you know between ten and twelve on a on a weekday night we'd be tuned into John Peel you know and yeah. with a headphones on so we didn't disturb our parents and we just you know we'd listen to the whole show back to back you know right through and record it and listen oh did you hear you know you say about the Nightingales you know I loved the Nightingales when they were and the Smiths we saw the Smiths a few times and Echo and the Bunny Men, and you know all these sort of bands that were kind of Peel favourites we, we, we you know we'd seen them all Gang of Four um you know some great great bands you know it's really really good bands i mean you can't you can't imagine now that those those bands and, and the quality of them that, that they yeah you know, you know they didn't really kind of hit the the real heights you know i mean you two I saw you too and i always thought you two were a poor man's echo and the bunny men but of <laughs> course they just had a better business plan yeah you know they you know they just had it they just had it the business system and were prepared to go that the extra mile you know whereas obviously McCulloch and that lot were just not prepared to do it so yeah it was a it was a you know it was great times and, and we just enjoyed that whole moment you know and the, the just the adventure of it all you know um so when, it, did,
0: when so when you started touring this must have been in 86 where you started doing the the yeah. you know, like art centers and such such like for that yeah. i mean did um Did you feel at that stage that you were sort of on some sort of mission? Did you think, because obviously when you start a band, mostly they don't really get off the launch pad. You know, you do a few gigs with your friends and family Mm. and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to go and see you. But then, you know, occasionally a band goes, blimey, you know, we're on the John Peel show, we got played, we're in the NME. Because at that stage you also had, you know, like we had these, you know, like the gatekeepers, you had three weekly papers, had huge circulation. Mm. And every city and town had a venue, didn't they, to play an alternative night? So yeah. you know, so so did you feel in sort of '86 after you'd been going for nearly a year that things were had potential?
1: Well, I think I think we I think we we were unsure. I think with the with the with the first, with the early stuff and, and you know, good to be the king. Yeah, that that came out of that Peel session and. You know that 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 was for me was was actually you know I, I think quite right it was a it was our standout single i think the first single was was great and it was kind of novel and it was unusual it was a bit it's a bit off bit off off the wall you know uh with this kind of drum machine that keeps going you know keeps going out of time you know it's a bit sounds a bit like oh hello sorry the dog's just come in just a minute go oh, on there you go <laughs> no are you staying in here you better She's sorry, she's getting a bit old and she yeah, uh, come on, come. On. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, no, I think, yeah, but it I think Good to Be the King was was was, you know, I, I personally I, you know it's one that I can still look back on and think, yeah, that was a that was a good track. It's it it really does fizz along and you know it's that kind of post-punk and it's got that kind of rockabilly um sent you know a sound that we kind of liked as well and i think the one thing that you know that made us distinctive as well was obviously that we we used a lot of slide guitar
0: yeah
1: that was that was that was our kind of calling card i think because you know that that came from playing with the blues stuff and and you know listening to elmore james and like this and hoppy you know being being as good as he is you know he sort of took to it really well um and and, uh, I think it just you know that good to be the king, it just really does lend itself to that and it and it just came over as a you know when we recorded it, I just thought, yeah this is actually this is much more like what we're about, you know
0: yeah um, and then and then you the the the, the album Thunderhead
1: were you pleased yeah.
0: were were you pleased with that you know,
1: when you heard it back parts of it, it, it i mean it, it's difficult, but I mean we have John Langford record um uh, produced it for us uh, over in Leeds um and there are bits in there you know I think Thunderhead Johnny Thunderhead the track is 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 pretty good on there there's some on there that you, you think well actually with you know with hindsight we probably probably shouldn't have put on there but we you know we were I think we were just I don't know we'd, we'd sort of we'd, we'd, we'd been quite instantaneous about what we were doing you know we'd, we'd not really filtered very much it was, it was you know kind of walks and all right uh, a process you know that we you know we, we for every good to be the king there were you know probably another two or three that were not <laughs> of the same caliber you know but but we, we, we but over the years you know we which is where where maybe other bands are you know luckier than us in the in the sense that if they if they make it after maybe being together for a couple of years those ones that are kind of rough and ready, they've, they've sidelined and said, well, that, that, you know, we don't fancy that one anymore. That's, you know, that's obviously rubbish. And yes. we just recorded everything we had. and We just kept producing stuff to record and, you know, and that, that works to an extent, but of course, if you, if you mess it up, <laughs> it's not quite as so good as it, you know, oh. um, but um, yeah, so it was all a bit seat to seat the pants really.
0: Yes, but then, was where, the band? Because, cause, you know, I realised that, you know, bands have kind of a honeymoon phase, which is kind of... But you, you're sort of like... You already had quite a few um, line-up changes, but mostly, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of comes a bit later. But you had a few line-up changes after that first album, didn't you?
1: Yeah, well, we had... Um, yeah, well, I mean, there's a backstory to all of it, really, but, I mean, it, Pete was was somebody that we'd we'd got to know through friends and and you know he was a lovely guy but he had his own opinions about how things should be. Um and he he was, you know I mean I you know, say he was a good guy and, and you know there's no reason for us to really fall out. But at the end of the day, you know, Pete Pete was probably akin to our manager as well at the time. And I think Friction began to grow between us all. You know, we'd 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 had a few falling out, and I think I took a swing at him at a photo shoot in London, and he sort of, you know, we'd had a couple of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'd had a few few moments like that. You know, where things had, you know, well, we'd been on stage, and you know, things had kind of not gone as well as they should have, and we'd kind of perhaps fallen out backstage a bit. So nice. we, you know, but when you when you're crammed together. As as you were, we were, you know, pretty much twenty four seven for two years. You know, you, you you can't it can't all be harmony, can it? I mean, it's uh, oh
0: god, no! I mean, that's, you know, that's we, often it, the an moment. An incredibly isn't.
1: intense process, and we were you know we were living in then we were living in Newcastle and Sunderland, and we would, you know driving ridiculous amounts of miles to get to these gigs, and you know if we had a gig in London, it might just be a one night gig in London, and we'd go down and come back the same night. Now you. You know that's not not the healthiest way to live. You know, no. I think we did the John Peel session and we came back the, the same day. You know, drove down in the morning, did the session, came back that night, and got back about some like four in the morning or something. You know,
0: yeah, unloading gear at four in the morning is a, quite a tough one. Yeah, yeah. it's not yeah, it, so. it is difficult. No, actually, it, like-
1: our relationship sort of felt you know, fell out a bit then, and um and that was it. We we kind of parted ways with Pete and. Uh, um tim stayed with us um and we we got jeff in who was a, a good friend of ours from sunderland and he came in on base yeah uh, that that was the kind of final incarnation really to the end
0: yeah because then because it's interesting because because um you know the indie world i thought changed about 87 when a the smiths had broken up and then ecstasy comes along and there's definitely a bit of a shift in what the next you know generation wants to hear which is a lot about you know the mm-hmm. dancing and rave scene and then you had this Seattle stuff so when you were mm-hmm. recording Deafhead this was on mm-hmm. abstract records was that was that a big change for you doing being on a different label at that stage or was it not so yeah bad? we
1: and we'd moved again we you know we didn't see the thing with us is we were kind of kind of in transit a lot of the times we went from you know, the backstory is that we we were getting into a lot of scrapes. <laughs> we were we we were um you know, we weren't living the best lifestyle and and things were not as healthy as they should be. And that led to us getting into a bit of trouble. Um and I think Pete actually said, told the NME or something that I you know, of all the people in the band, I was the one most likely to go to prison. Um <laughs> which which was a bit rich but to be probably true at the time and you know we 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 had a a driver a mate of ours from 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 the rutland days and he he was um you know uh i don't know how to say i mean i don't know how candid people are on your show but you know he 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 was a hopeless uh addict and right yes basically he shouldn't be driving us (laughs) but (laughs) we were driving basically we we would do a we would, we would do a gig, and we would literally stop at every chemist on the way down to to make sure that you got us there okay. Because
0: yeah, no, there there is quite a lot of. I mean, at that stage, especially the 80s, there was still a lot of um, drinking and a bit of smoking and all the other stuff. You know, I mean, it, luckily for the 80s, it wasn't like the New York scene where people started getting into really heavy stuff, but I think that kind of happened with other bands a bit later with like spaceman three and um some of those yeah some of those other groups who who seem to sort of progress into a slightly different league of um medication so that's always tricky yeah
1: but that was kind of um yeah that was kind of you know the back the back story was that you know we were kind of in in you know larry, larry was our, our driver rody <laughs> kind of you know all ever present figure but with him came an awful lot of trouble as well we you know he brought people with him that were not necessarily people you'd want to be associated with and and at one point we got thrown out of our well me and hoppy had to move out of our flat because larry and these other lads moved in and and we just thought well, this is just getting way out of hand and these these guys were were um uh committing crimes in the sun area <laughs> and um anyway one day one day uh, we decided we were going to it, it, i think it was jeff and me and, and hoppy had all ended up in the pub and we'd, we'd had a good skinful and we decided we need to go back and get some stuff from our flat um, when I got there, they, these guys were wearing my clothes, <laughs> they, sat, you know, they sat there basically watching our telly. We, we basically handed it all over to them and, um, they said, oh, we're going, but we need some petrol. And somehow I got talked into going along with them to get, to try and siphon some petrol out of some poor and suspecting sods car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we drive, driving around Sunderland and suddenly we got surrounded by about 10 cop cars and, um, we all got arrested and we all got taken in and this is the kind of backstory to the Jansen. is probably why it, it wasn't a very <laughs> decent career but um yeah and we ended up in the in Sunderland nick and, and being questioned we, we were fine we they let us go after a day or so and we, we came out and <laughs> um but we decided that was probably the time to leave Sunderland. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe it wasn't too healthy for us to stick around. Um so we moved to Manchester to kind of keep one step ahead of the law. Mm-hmm. Um and we, we set up in Manchester and that that was, you know, a a good time. Um and that's where we we kind of got really big friends with the bikers then. The bikers had kind of taken off and we got them we we'd talk Jim Cambatter into signing them for Intape, um, and 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 they they'd done really really well. Their first single had taken off as well, um, and they they yeah we used to see a lot of them. You know we we were very close to them, so I still see Mary now and talk to Mary yes. quite a bit. Um, but you know we we became good good mates with them, and we'd go back to Leicester and stay with them for a few days, and they'd come up to Manchester and. You know, it was just a, a good time. You know, we we were all good friends, and 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 then, um, but then we got word on. The, I think there was problems with the bikers and, and intake, and they they it was at the point at which I think they went off. They got I think Virgin were hovering to to sign them up, and um, there was friction, and and we kind of were in the middle of it a bit. And then we heard on the grapevine that. Jim had run out of money in tape and that um is it Cherry Red? I think the yeah. the publisher. They they'd pulled the plug a little bit on him and reined him in a bit. They perhaps thought he was, you know, spending too much. Um and so the money was, you know, his money had dried up a bit and and we couldn't get hold of him and it was all a bit bit shady, you know, and we and we decided, look, you know, enough's enough. And we we just so we jumped. And with hindsight, you know, our most the most success that we had or the, the you know the, the kind of high points that we had really were were thanks to Intape and, and and mark riley and jim cambata but also not only that but but once we signed for abstract it, it kind of really we we just didn't get the exposure that we were getting because they just didn't have the leverage to to get us in in the limelight you know things started to you know decline then you know, i mean like the defed the album you know it, it got decent reviews but it, it kind of just never got promoted never seemed to you know why, people just why, didn't know
0: it was there. why is it so hard to find your stuff it's it's kind of um you know because mostly especially now you know 30 years later you probably realize that most bands have started getting all their archives out there you know people
1: are reading mm. well all and, our stuff is on was on, on was analog for a start right um I mean, the stuff that is available, I mean, Spotify and, and all of that, you can you can find all our all of our uh, intake stuff. And that's mainly because, you know, Cherry Red. And Cherry Red still, you know, ensure that their stuff is kind of out there. Yeah. Um, whereas the stuff we did for Abstract, it just, just seems to have kind of fallen through a crack of the pavement. And it felt like that at the time. You know, we signed to Abstract, we did an album from, which is pretty good. We actually recorded two, what I think, two are our best singles for them as well. Um, but they just didn't get any kind of acknowledgement. They just seemed to kind of disappear. And it, mainly it's down to Leverage. You know, if you, a Cherry Red had um, obviously had the market sewn up in terms of, um, you know, the big indie bands. The, yeah. they, they were big, big, you know, with the Three Johns and people like that. And, you know, The Fall and all of these bands, they were all kind of, you know Cherry Red obviously had a kind of a a really good kind of connection with all of that and um and I think that that's why we got from you know quite a lot of really good promotion in the first phase but with 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 Abstract they just didn't have that clout you know they just couldn't seemed to get us the airplay, and they couldn 't get us
0: so who who because I, I you know being a fan you don 't really understand this business, but who kind of owns you know because you have to sign you have a publishing deal don 't you who yeah. kind of owns the music so so you you don't have the recordings of that those kind of material yourself somebody else owns recordings, and you just
1: no they own, they own the right well <laughs> In in a in in the in the real world, in, what should happen is that the the publisher gives you a, some money up front. They they give you some money against future sales of your material. So every time you get play play on the radio in those days, you used to get, I think it was about thirty pounds. I mean nowadays you get about five pence. But in those days, if you got radio play, it was worth so much. If you got yeah. um, if you got singles in you know. Uh, single every single that was produced you got so much in mechanical royalties for that and it, you know it was a, um you know and there were there were royalties for different things that you did you know yeah um so if a, if a shop played your music for example they had to they had to make a note of that and then they're supposed to pay you but um what happens if you sign a publishing deal they front you the money against your future royalties right so they give, you know, for example, I mean, we didn't get this, but you know, say, say, if you sign to a major label, they might give you fifty thousand pounds to go off and record three singles and an album.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, and that fifty thousand pounds is then recouped from the money that the, you know, if the if the records are hit, yeah, then you get money back. You know, it's a it's a bit of a gamble on their part. um and in terms of us you know we'd signed this deal with cherry Red, well with intake but that had actually then you know unbeknownst to us we we were kind of on the cherry red roster um and cherry red really had had, had the market sewn up in sort of northern indie bands yeah they, you know they, an awful lot of the publishing royalties for indie bands goes via cherry red um and it's something that tim you know the drummer's kind of said to me before well you know i'm sure they owe us loads of money and that and i'm like well to him you know i'm not interested i really haven't got the you know it's a long time ago and i really don't think it's worth us kind of bothering with but yeah there's a whole whole backstory there somewhere i don't know I'm a bit like the old kind of i suppose the 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 50s artists that kind of you know have a million seller hit and, and get like nothing for it but right but um you know, it's not, it was never about the money for us. I mean, we, you know, we, we didn't make any money. We didn't look to make any money, really. We just looked to enjoy ourselves and and to have a great time. And that's what we did. You know, we, you know, we had a, a huge adventure and, you know, it was, I think it was just perfect, a perfect time for us, really, as a band, because, you know, we, we were all from that sort of punk and post-punk generation. Yeah. In the indie scene at that time was very much kind of the the kind of manifestation of that punk ethos of anybody can do it uh, and i think we just kind of we we just did, bought into that you
0: know? yeah and did you play abroad as well did you get to yeah we
1: did we played um we played in um in well we did a couple of european talks. We played in amsterdam and and uh you know you can imagine taking our driver to amsterdam that was a
0: <laughs> My God, oh,
1: oh, that was a winner! <laughs> 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 um, but uh, we played, yeah, we played all over. You know, we played um, in behind the Iron Curtain. We played in Poland. We got managed to get ourselves arrested in Poland. Um, <laughs> we had a we had a KGB operative with us, um, or whatever they are, whatever the Polish version was as soon as we arrived this guy in this kind of three-piece denim suit you know he was very hip to the kids um <laughs> and we went to went to a restaurant with him and weirdly you know we 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 played hamburg the night before or or the week the day before it was hamburg and then we, we'd come out of hamburg we'd driven into poland through east germany <laughs> through through you know through the communist block into this kind of new completely different world, um, and I brought uh, a little bit of um, uh, a resin with me in in one of my back pocket from Hamburg, and which is a totally stupid thing to do, but you know, intelligence wasn't really our forte. Yeah. Um, but we got to this restaurant with this with this kind of secret policeman who was going to be our chaperone for all the time we were in Poland, and he, he and he says, "Yeah, you like to smoke grass?" And we're like, "Oh yeah, all right." And we're in this kind of we're in this hunting lodge all these weirdly all these boars heads and buffalo heads all around the wall and you know like a sort of timber cabin and you know weird sort of weird place and we went oh yeah yeah we do and anyway he gave us this stuff said, christ like vile <laughs> like really horrible so god knows what it was i said well can do you mind if i you know can i make one and he said yeah yeah go for it so we. Okay, came in this joint in in this restaurant in the middle of middle of Gdansk at the time of solidarity and all that, you know. Uh, and he he took about three puffs and his face nearly hit the table. It just <laughs> it knocked him out. And uh, off we went. And we we just you know so we went off and got some vodka and enjoyed ourselves. But we managed to go out. We didn't realise it was at the time of solidarity and all of that. And we did realise it was a curfew in in Gdansk in Gdynia So we went off down to the quayside and went into this bar and got absolutely slaughtered by these Russian sailors um, you know, having a great time. And then we, we decided we were hungry. So we went all, you know, the four of us all trapped off into Gdansk to look through a cafe or McDonald's or whatever. And... Uh, suddenly we we're, were surrounded and busted and that was it. We were in, we were we stopped and uh, <laughs> threatened and all kinds of stuff. But uh, so it was all, it was all like that, you know, it, it, that kind of summed up really our, our our career as rock and rollers, you know, completely chaotic. Um, yes. And we ended up then, you know, we, we, we played in uh, Czechoslovakia, I think, and then into Yugoslavia and uh and then back through europe and yeah so we, had, we you know we 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 had a good time it was it was it was fun it was yeah really fun.
0: do you um? i mean because the band then sort of comes comes to a sad end doesn't it sort of was mm. 89 was there i mean was the writing on the wall was it the point that everyone had just kind of had enough by then
1: yeah i think like uh i think like a firework you know that, that it, it had been spectacular when it kicked off and you know everything had been sort of you know we, we could do no wrong and then i think after after the abstract time you know things started to kind of become very hard and very difficult to kind of sustain you know we, we would you know we weren't getting promoted and you know i suppose it's a classic story you know lots of false promises and very little money being put up and you know we we, we just i guess it's sort of Put an awful lot of pressure on us, and I, 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 think we also are, are kind of, you know, to be honest, you know, we, we'd all, we'd all got far too fond of of partying, and yes. and that was take its toll, you know, the bikers that mentioned, and all of us, we were all living together. Uh, we, by that time, we'd all moved to London. We were all living in the same house in Tooting. Like it was, you know, Mary from the bikers, me, Hoppy, you know, the bomb party. would like it was like this kind of carnage every day was carnage and 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 you know uh, eventually it's going to take its toll and i think we just kind of really you know we just started losing our way a bit and that led to more friction and you know and just and and then by the end of it i i towards 89 i i think we all started growing up a little bit as well we'd all got relationships you know we'd all got partners we were living in different parts of london and you know it wasn't quite the same you know in those early years you know when we first started it was me and hoppy sharing a flat yeah you know recording in our bedroom and now we were here we were in you know four or five years later we were living in london four different parts of london meeting up in a recording studio to record an album you know or to to do another demo or something you know it wasn't quite the same anymore and, you know, I don't think we were kind of cut out to be that kind of rock band. We were never going to be U two. We never had the music business. sus. I no. can tell you that for nothing. We had no idea what we, <laughs> what our career path was going to be like. We just, we just, I guess we kind of just rode rode the beast for as long as it was. It was you know, yeah.
0: but there. But it was interesting because because I don't know if this is um, completely you know up to date. But Tim performs with My Bloody Valentine and the Meat and Hoppy is the guitar technician for with chris chris martin from the uh
1: Coldplay, play yeah mm. which is you know so you do yeah well that that's kind of that's kind of yeah that was all yeah i mean i didn't know really much what happened with tim i mean when i i i say we all had you know we were all in getting into long-term relationships and I, I i was struggling a bit really i think with um in terms of my kind of uh mental well-being I, i'd kind of I was starting to get panicky and, and anxiety, lots of anxiety and stuff. And that was partly, you know, excessive partying, but also, you know, with, with the stress of being in the band and it not really doing as, you know, what we were hoping it was going to do. Yeah. Um, and it and it kind of took its toll a bit, and I'd, I'd sort of had enough by then, I think. And at, and I, at some point I just said, look, you know, guys, that's it. I think we're finished. Um, and, and actually, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd had some a really hard time in the in the sort of two three months leading up to it and i'd, I'd kind of got to the point where i wasn't going out or anything was really struggling um and um and the minute i told them that it was over i was fine i was back to normal you know it just it was like a massive weight lifted off my shoulders you know and and you know settled down had a family and um, moved away you know moved moved over to Cheltenham and. Started again, you know, started afresh. fresh. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I know the boys. You know, I mean, Hoppy, Hoppy started off with. We had a guy after after we um, parted company with Larry, in, after he took us through Manchester about ninety miles an hour um, one night in search of a chemist that was open. Um, I said, look, lads, this is we can't keep doing this. You know, this is just crazy. It's just too much, <laughs> even by our standards, it was just too much. Um, and we, we kind of parted ways and, and, and then we, we, we used to use a guy called Bish, um, who, who was, a you know, a driver man, you know, used to drive band around with his van and, um, uh, and, and when we lived you know, in London, it was him and Chris, a guy called Chris, um, who sadly passed away recently, but, um, yeah, it was Chris and Bish and they had the, you know, they used to run these vans, um, and Bish got Hoppy because Hoppy could drive. He got him to do some driving work for him, you know, to sort of make ends meet. Yeah. Um, and one of the people, well, there were two people there on their roster. One was uh, was um, Lonnie Donnegan, <laughs> the old skipper guy. Excellent. So obviously used to take Lonnie Donnegan around, <laughs> who was, by that time was this miserable old sod with a heart problem, you know. Nice. <laughs> were Terrible, and the and the other one was Coldplay, and, and and you know when they were just starting out, and and Hoppy sort of was their driver, and of course he knew a bit about guitar, so I guess he kind of helped them, you know, became their guitar roadie at the same time, and and it sort of grown, you know, and I I spoke to I speak I don't speak to Hoppy very much anymore, but I have I spoke to him a couple of years ago, and we were talking about it, and I said, Christ said. You know, he's literally been to every country in the world, you know. So he's just had this mad life, you know, post-Janitors, yeah. where he's just, like, literally has been on tour for the last 25 years, you know. um, And I phoned him up once, and he's like, put your phone down, mate. I'm in Japan, you know. And I'm like, Christ, you know. And he, he literally, you know, would, would start in... Canada, like in the north, right up in the north of Canada, and literally crisscross America all the way down to Mexico, you know, it would just be the most insane schedules. And, um, but, you know, fair play to him. I think, you know, I think he, he, he's growing, or he was growing tired of it. And I think, you know, the fact that Coldplay have kind of, I think they've kind of knocked Torrin on the head. I think he probably sees that as a bit of a blessing. Yeah. He takes his toll on there. he's, you know, he's, he, I don't think it's as pleasurable as it might sound
0: <laughs> it's a tough one isn't it really is it so what i mean i was always curious what happens to larry in this kind of story does he uh well become he, an he, he, he
1: he met uh yeah he, he he wasn't a very happy man larry and, he, and unfortunately he took his own life but oh, he yeah. um, right. he um yeah he he yeah it was a tough one it was it was just about eighty-eight, I guess. So, and I still speak to his daughters. I'm still in friend and his ex-wife, but it was all very messy, and you know, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a good time. You know, you, his condition was 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 never going to be resolved. He couldn't not be addicted. He he just couldn't, no matter how hard he tried. He might go a few weeks, but he just couldn't. And 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 I think he just had nowhere to go know, um, yeah, i mean it, i think for us you know we we couldn't rely on him to drive us anymore um yeah. we still saw him about but we you know and i think and it was nothing to do with us The, you know him him being the, you know being ill and doing what he did but it was it wasn't it wasn't down to us for for not for parting ways with him. it was down to the fact that he just knew that he wouldn't get back with his family and you know i think he just kind of it was a spiral of decline really you know as it is so often with these things you know and and very sad and you know but yeah um, yes. his daughter i mean the thing the weird thing is you know his daughters are, are, are the smartest kindest you know loveliest people you know one daughter she writes and blogs and she's just great you know they live in the states and the other one lives in france and she's just you know it's kind of great kind of character you know yeah it's a shame you know it's just a shame that uh, yeah but you know sadly that's that's you know that's that that was that kind of world that we lived in you know that that was you know that we inhabited you know you know he was probably the most excessive of it all but there was a lot of people like him around us you know and that's probably part of the chaos that we lived in
0: yes it's a tricky one so when you kind of stopped the janitors and then sort of got your Mm. life and career is that kind of the, the the end of the kind of the been in the band and singing or did you sort of keep... yeah
1: I've not I've not done anything musically since I mean I've, I've got mates who do and I've kept saying oh yeah you know a mate of mine keeps sending me demos and so, oh yeah you should put a vocal on this I, yeah yeah but I never do I never get around to it and you know I know Hoppy you know and, and I know Tim as well Tim's done a lot of music you know he's been with a lot of bands and he still does a bit of recording I think but he you know I think we've all kind of got to an age now where you know it's a a bit edifying to me to me <laughs> thinking about getting a band together you know I, I do wonder sometimes with, when you see these kind of um, these bands going out on tour again and you know you think well what's, yeah, why? yeah really why you know really why yeah would,
0: it's, a, it, it's a funny yeah I mean it's I think it, I think having done this show for a while I did I sort of realised that a lot of people you know they have that five year narrative that was very similar to yours you know the second album mm. or third and then it's like we've all, we all sort of, you know, in a simplistic way that, you know, everyone's had enough of each other and there's no money and it's like, there's no Mm. feeling that anything's going to change. So everyone goes their separate way, but often, you know, like 30 years later, people, it isn't about reforming the band, but I can see that a few people have just thought, actually I quite enjoyed playing music and it's quite nice to just occasionally do it, but only just for a fun, you know, like the idea of trying to enter the world in any other, you know, a bit like just, I don't know kicking a football around you know you don't mind doing it for a bit of a laugh though that's a bad idea when you get older because you will probably go and sprain something but yeah I did I sort of noticed a lot of the 80s bands I mean people don't call themselves that band anymore but they just kind of like to kind of occasionally record the odd single or odd Mm. album just to kind of keep you know keep themselves amusing really. Mm.
1: Yeah I mean I wouldn't say you know over the years at different points I've thought well yeah that you know that, that's quite a good idea, or that sounds, you know, you know, I, I might have an idea, and I think, well, that that might be something, you know, and then, I, but then I just kind of put it to one side and think, I'm there, you know. Yeah. I just, I just don't see what what point there would be in doing it, really. I just, but you must you be, know, you must be it. It, it was a point, it was a point in time, and you yeah. know, and it's a shame, and it is a shame because I probably would enjoy doing it, but I just can't bring myself to do it. I just. You know it was kind of a put i put a lid on it and 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 you know and i know i know yeah a lot of mates you know a lot of the bikers and people like that have kind of have come back and done a done a little tour and crazy Ed have done a few tours and you know and but i've just had other things to do you know i've oh, just yes. had a you know I, I i went you know weirdly for somebody who left school in the in the circumstances i did you know i went back in two what nineteen ninety nine went to got myself off to uni and um you know, got my degree and, and did a did a teacher qualification and since sort of two thousand and three that's what i've been doing so you know and I'm, and I'm just coming to the point now where i'm just about to retire from that so <laughs> but, uh, so i you know i've been you know i've been a a very very um sensible person not really but i've been you know i've been probably the most oddball teacher that any kids ever had but i've been um, you know i've been teaching for the past sort of seventeen, eighteen 18 years and you know that's kind of where my where, where my head's been at so yes. yeah yeah being, being in a band is you now that you know it's not really something that's
0: so was were you a history teacher
1: I, yeah, well, I still am. I still, I still do three days a week, and um, I was an assistant head, actually. I was in. I was, a, you know, I was actually a, a member of the leadership, but, um, you yeah, know, weirdly. But, uh, yeah, no, I was a history teacher, yeah. Yeah, history teacher. Well, it's funny. I, that... and, uh, go on, sorry.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm not going to re- remember the band. His name was Jim, but I can't. It was kind of a bit of a, a heavy rock band-ish, you know, from the 80s, and... And I uh, did an interview and he was like, I think he's the deputy head of a sort of London school. And he said, yeah, I'll, oh. got, I'm working this evening, but you can phone me, you know, then it's quite quiet, you know. And it's like,
1: oh, yeah. God, I thought
0: you're the deputy head yeah. of the school. And, you know?" Yeah,
1: like, well, it took a long while to get there, though. I mean, you know, I left the band in 89. It was 10 years before I went to uni. So for the first <laughs> for the first few years, I mean, I was a market trader when I first left the band. So I was selling selling stuff on markets and then I then I happened to started making um pitch framing and making furniture and I started getting back down and selling stuff on Portobello Road and you know and I was just kind of we you know trying to find something to do that that I really enjoyed and I just you know you say about football but I would actually my eldest lad who was born in eighty nine when I left the band um he he played for the local team and I got involved with coaching and stuff. And I did my coaching badges and, and just went off and started doing some of that. And a mate of mine said, well, look, you know, you, you've got your badges. Do you fancy doing some after school clubs? And I was kind of, I, you know, I my own business, like, you know, I said, yeah, go on, I'll do it for you. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. And that's kind of where I, I thought, well, you yeah, know, I wonder if maybe that might be where, where I should go. And, yeah, I know. I no regrets whatsoever. Best thing I ever did, you know. And, and it's been it's been great, you know. It's great with the you know the kids, and they they you know they they kind of you see like lads at school, you know, getting bands together. And you just think, oh yeah, I remember that, you know that that kind of uh, sweet innocence, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just just messing around with the instrument. In fact, I bought my steps on a guitar and amp for Christmas, you know, in, in the hope that he'll kind of. Because he, him, and his mates are talking about getting a band together. I just, I thought, yeah, go on. I bought, so I bought him my guitar and I'm ready. So, so he's got no excuses.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I mean, if you, so, last question: If you could have said something to a, a sixteen or eighteen year old self, what would what sort of advice would you have wanted to have given yourself after all these years and decades of experience? <sighs> well, nah,
1: I wouldn't. <laughs> what, what advice yeah
0: I, I mean if you could have whispered. Unfortunately,
1: between... unfortunately knowing what i was like when i was 16 18 it would have been it would have been pissing in the wind it would have been an absolute <laughs> waste of time because <laughs> there, there was no way i was doing anything that anybody ever advised me i think my teachers at school always advised me to sort myself out and get you know do this and i never managed it you know managed and then you know when I was 18 you know went off and uh people always advice is great but it's all it's, it normally falls on deaf ears it and does, I think but, I don't but, think I would have done anything differently I don't but,
0: but with you with your experience that you have you know and, and what you've lived I mean if it, it, what would be the you like the two bullet points that you would have just thought actually that's something that I've learned in my life that um that's just come from being on this planet
1: um, make the most of it while you've got the chance. And I think I don't know what the second one would be. Um Trust people more, perhaps. Be more trust be more trusting of people who know better. Right. But um I don't know. I mean, I mean, I've always, I I don't know. It's a hard one, isn't it? Because I think all in all, you know, you know, I've done what I've done and, and lived the way I've lived and, is it, there's no point in looking back and saying, "Well, you didn't give it a go," because we did.
0: Yeah. You know, we gave
1: it a go with the band, and I've given it a go with my own business, and I've given it a go as a teacher. And and you know, I think as long as you've got energy and enthusiasm for what you're doing at the time, then you know that's the that's really the the kind of the most the, the most you can hope for. I think if you you know, like with the band, you know, when you're not enjoying it, then there's really no point in making yourself miserable or sick or ill or you know yeah. living a lie in many ways, you know, and I think that that's unfortunately with a lot of bands, it really just becomes a routine, you know? Um, and I think, you know, I think we, we just about sort of knocked it on the head before it got to that point. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what was the point of the Janters after, you know, after that point, I think, you know, if we'd have, if we'd have, Kind of limped on for another couple of years we might have you know gone down the shaman route and done a little dance tune or something yeah. and you know or maybe got on the back of the manchester um thing you know because obviously we knew a few of those guys and bands like the lars and the farm who kind of we had supported us at gigs around the country and you know we we so we you know i think we we had a good we had a good go and we were we were we were right for the time but uh
0: Yes, well, that's good. Actually, yeah. there's one other band that I remember buying the single, finding the single, it was the the Bambi Slam. Can you remember the Bambi Slam at all? Good. I remember the name,
1: but I don't remember the, anything about them.
0: Yeah, mm. I just wondered if they were all in these kind of, there were so many little indie bands and indie labels and, you know. Amateur. Yeah, there
1: were. I mean, you were, I saw you, a, a, I had a look on your Facebook thing, you would had a guy from the Inca Babies. Oh, yeah, on. Harry. Yeah, Harry, yeah, yeah I remember him, we used to, because they were in Manchester about the same time as us, and it was all kind of, we, you know, it was a little bit of rivalry, but it was fun, you know, but um, yeah, I remember him taking the piss out of my jacket one night at <laughs> the Manchester International, you know, and it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but, is, uh, Man- was it true that he was related to the Cadbury family?
0: God, I didn't ask him that.
1: And that's what the, that was. What everybody used to say, oh, old Harry, yeah, because he doesn't need any money. He's family-owned cabries a bit, a bit, might have been a bit of in-band bitchiness. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I haven't come across that one. There was um, there's most of the bands have never given the impression of having that kind of trust fund kind of lifestyle. Most of them have been a bit grim, really, and gone into either, yeah, doing the creative industries or quite a lot going back and doing a degree and then doing, you know, teaching or lecturing or something like that, so yeah,
1: yeah. Mm. but you know, I Because uh, the Three Johns, I mean, is it the is it John Hyatt from the Three Johns? I mean, he, he, he's behind the, you know, the, the big indie arts projects, isn't Manchester, the yeah. indie cinema and all, you know. And, then,
0: and then you've got your, um, was it John, the other John who produced your Langford. Langford. Yeah. So he was he one of your producers, wasn't he? Or... Yeah,
1: he he produced our first. Um, I think he he might have produced "Good to Be the King," actually. Yeah. The, it'll tell you on the back if you look on the sleeve, but um, yeah, he might have produced that. No, um,
0: no, it
1: doesn't. Ah, no, Red Rhino. I don't know. No, no, it doesn't. No, but well, he might have done. I think it was him. And then there was, uh, but he did do the, he, he did produce Thunderhead, yeah. And we did a lot, we did a, did some touring with them in, in Germany and that as well. Yes. It was pretty cool, because they, they were like mid-range kind of indie. They kind of, yeah, were a bit of a cut above, you know, that we were like new and they were kind of, they pretty well established by then.
0: Oh, they, um, yeah, they were around in about seventy and 79, weren't they? Well, the Mekons,
1: the Mekons were, because I had their first. Yes. Team.
0: Yeah, sorry. The Mekons
1: were know. 78. Um, and then the three Johns were probably 81 onwards. They're about the same time as the Smiths, so about 81 to
0: yeah. 85.
1: Yeah, so they were kind of well established at that point. But um, they're nice guys, you know, we got on well with them.
0: Yes, well, yeah, a few of them are
1: still doing it. The Mekons still play. Um,
0: yeah. I, I saw that um, they did something uh, down in East Anglia about two years ago, sort of yeah. uh, some sort of weekend festival where they all got together and um, played. So, um,
1: yes, yeah. Well, they, well, they've had, you know Tim drummed for them for a while, and Sarah from the Bomb Party plays bass with them now, and you know they've had a you know cast of thousands. I think yes. Yeah.
0: A huge man well look thank you ever so much for your time
1: no it's been great great talking to you and That's uh hope there's something they use yes and, well, uh,
0: absolutely well thank you again for that great night in norwich many decades ago
1: oh well yeah did we have the was it did we have the top hats that we used to set like to then I
0: don't think you remember so. that no no
1: uh, we... I thought we did at that one but uh, yeah we, we we used to have this thing with the top hat we set these hats on fire and do all kind of crazy shit like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway yeah I, do, yeah I do remember I do remember there was some kind of skinheads at the front who were kind of getting a bit out of hand at some point and I think Pete was kind of just about to put his base down to give it a, to, to wade in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one. One. yeah nice
0: one anyway look thank you again and yeah great David thank you him take care yeah see you you. bye 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 Bye. yep that's how you say goodbye in a very concise way i know very fumbling there anyway look that's the end of the interview thank you ever so much to andrew denton for giving me the time for that from the janitors this has been the c86 show i'm david eastall if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show also Um, I've archived all these interviews as well for free, so you can find those on Spotify iTunes, Podbean, C86 show, keep it, uh, yes enjoy them if you want to, if you don't, don't bother Um, and if you get in touch, make it positive and nice, otherwise don't bother this though is me being chirpy cheerful and very exciting have a great week, stay safe